Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk, if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez. And today I have a guest, Dr. Nathan Schmidtschny. Did I pronounce it right? Yeah, you did. (laughs) Doctor, what is the background of your last name? Um, It's kind of a mix, like most people, but uh, the majority comes from Polish and uh, Czech. Okay. Do you grow up up here in the Midwest? I did, uh, northern Minnesota. Oh, what part? Bemidji, Minnesota. Bemidji. Yeah. You know what? Once, the, my first time that I went to Bemidji, uh, I got a ticket <laughs> and I was uh, canoeing. <laughs> but the funny part, so, um, how you C- call common. that? Yeah, uh, I got a ticket for not having the life jacket. Even mm. even that we were, the water was like uh, probably lower than uh, the hip really oh yeah i thought you were going to say speeding that, no that's, no, a, that's no. a common thing no no canoeing for not having <laughs> yeah. enough life jackets and we said okay can we walk back to the shore and it was really low in the part where we were and no he gave us a ticket to everybody in the canoe <laughs> for not having enough canoe. i mean he said you don't have to wear it but it had to be in the canoe i was going to say they're pretty strict on on spe- and trafficking and speeding and stuff, yep. but I, I didn't realize boating was the same on the same level. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, we, I, we couldn't believe it. I mean, the water is so low, and and we were three adults, and nope, we all we got a ticket. So, the major beautiful area, yeah. isn't that where the Mississippi starts? Is that the right area? Not by Bemidji, not or? Qu- uh, not not quite. Um, uh, what is up? I've been. Also, it, it, that part of the state with the Mississippi stars, always considered. Yeah. Um, if what you, would it be? If you go along, it, not quite around Bemidji. It's, I mean, it's not too far. But if you go around Highway, um, Highway Two, then you'll kind of see around there the Mississippi. Okay. But, yeah, but it's kind of a, a shot from southern part, southeast of the state into the central northern part of the state where Bemidji's at, and then you'll kind of see see it, but not, not near Bemidji. Okay. Um, so, Doctor, can you share with us why are you here today? Why are you want to share the news of your work? Uh, so I, Which department do you work so people get an idea of, of uh, what are we going to be learning today? Yep, so I'm, I work in the Department of Anesthesiology. I'm an anesthesia intensivist, so my kind of subspecialty training is in critical care medicine. And uh, most of my research focuses on a admixture of two anesthetic drugs, ketamine and propofol, uh, that's commonly called ketafol or ketafol. So for our friends who are, who are listening, can you describe a little bit of the intention, uh, intense care unit? first so they get an idea yep uh the intensive care unit is a place that uh, uh cares for the critically ill um it's kind of a step up from the hospital floor 
um, intermediate care unit, emergency, emergency department. Um, it's kind of where people where people go when they're really really ill and need quite a few life saving interventions. So it could be after a surgery yep. or after an accident. Could be after a surgery, after a trauma, after just you know they're on the hospital floor recovering from their illness, and all of a sudden things get worse and they need higher level of care. Um, so it, it, it patients come from various areas, um, but essentially when you're admitted to the intensive care unit, you're, you're for the most part, and not always, but very sick, um, okay. and you require life-sustaining or, you know, life-supporting interventions. So. Okay, and you work on anesthesiology. Yep. Yeah. Right. My yeah. I globally, I'm in the department of anesthesiology, and then some of the time I spend in the intensive care unit. Okay. Yep. And you conduct a study. I yep. I so the kind of what I wanted to talk about today was, mm-hmm. uh, as I said, my interest is in this admixture of ketamine profile called Ketafol, and uh, it's a, an admixture of two anesthetic drugs used to uh, sedate somebody for placing a breathing tube when they're in respiratory distress, and so it applies to the operating room uh, where I where I work the majority of the time, mm-hmm. and it also applies to the intensive care unit because patients in the intensive care unit, as I said, get very ill, need life-supporting um, uh, interventions, and one of one of those interventions is placing a breathing tube to help them breathe okay. um, to re- as they recover from their illness. And so during that, just like in the operating room, they usually get some sedative medications to place the breathing tube, and um, there's various sedatives that people use. And how, um, how they... Um, so how do, do they do this when a person is really ill and they need that support? Is you, a lot of times is that done in a emergency manner? Or? Yep. Yeah, so it, in the operating room, it's for the most part in a controlled setting. Um, you obviously have cases that come from the emergency department or a trauma, let's say, that needs, you know, uh, emergent operative intervention, and so th- those are obviously emergent cases. But by and large, most of the cases in the operating room are, are elective, done under controlled conditions. In the intensive care unit, you don't have that luxury. It's usually usually things are done very quickly, um, emergent, urgent. Um, v- seldom are they elective procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a lot more. Um, chaotic environment intensive care unit therefore it lends itself to a lot more complications um, okay. and so doing from the procedure fr- from the, the procedure itself from the act of sedating the patient for the procedure kind of everything that goes into the conduct of the intubation that you do in the operating room you get into a lot more trouble in the intensive care unit just because okay. you don't have that time to carefully plan things out or or it's not in a controlled setting it's more of a chaotic setting and you study you say you you study the mixture of these two um can you repeat the names of the yep yeah so the there's there's a list of anesthetic drugs that um clinicians use to sedate patients for placing the breathing tube okay um i would say the three most popular ones probably in the, in this country and, and likely throughout the uh the world is ketamine, um, propofol, and atomidate. And uh, my interest is in a admixture or combination of ketamine and propofol together, which is coined ketafol or ketafol, however you want to pronounce mm-hmm. it, um, to sedate patients with. 
And, and the reason why I do that is the, the Tomidate is um, clinically considered blood pressure safe. So in other words, people usually receive, uh, patients usually receive a Tomidate because cl- the clinician feels that it doesn't lower their blood pressure or it doesn't raise their blood pressure. So it's kind of blood pressure neutral, if you will. Okay. So it kind of maintains their pre-blood pressure status. And so it's chosen a lot for that reason. The problem with the Tominate, what's what's been associated with it over the years, is we've noticed adrenal insufficiency. Um, and the adrenal insufficiency has led itself to increased organ failure, which indirectly leads to increased uh, mortality and death. Um, so the downstream effects of using a Tominate aren't good, according to recent literature. And so the finding an alternative that still maintains that blood pressure so you don't drop it so the patient doesn't get into more trouble is is sought after right now and ketamine um, by itself usually raises the blood pressure and heart rate and so you may think well that's good however in some cases in somebody that's in extremis so such as a patient in the icu typically that's in shock or you know critically ill Giving ketamine can sometimes have the opposite effect. It can unmask a in vitro depression or myocardial depression effect of ketamine, and they can go into cardiac arrest. Um, also, if it does raise your blood pressure and heart rate, um, that's not good for a critically ill patient that has underlying heart disease, you know, coronary artery disease. Cause so they so who, who would it be somebody who's not candidate for ketamine? Um, and, you know, depending with on depending some kind of on pressure. yeah, depending on what textbook you read, they'll get probably various things. I, I would say most would agree that um, somebody with underlying heart disease, ischemic okay. heart disease, probably um, shouldn't get ketamine for the reasons I, I just stated. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, somebody that has uh, psychiatric disorders, because um, the the uh, one of the feared effects of ketamine is hallucinations or kind of a PCP. Um, like effect uh, where they get hallucinogenic effects from it. Um, so yeah, they, it stands to reason that somebody with psychiatric illness you probably don't want to give it to. Um, and those are the probably two big groups. The third one, you know, the, the, the other two, some people may argue that somebody with high pressures in the lungs and the pulmonary circulation you wouldn't want to give it to because it constricts pulmonary vas- the pulmonary vasculature. And the fourth one, maybe if they have high pressure in their head, in a cranial pressure, you may not want to give it to because it can raise the pressure in their head. So those are kind of the general consensus, what you should stay, mm-hmm. patients you shouldn't use ketamine on. Um, but and how, it, how, how uh, can somebody make a decision when it's in an emergency setting? That's, yeah. That'll be so hard. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, often though it's reverted to the patient, to the clinicians, you know, um, what they're comfortable with, you know, what mm-hmm. do they always do? That's usually what they pick because they're yeah. used to the, you know, if they, yeah, if they like ketamine, they've always used ketamine. They'll, you know, they'll revert to that for the most part. That's usually kind of what happens in clinical situations. The, the third one I'll say is that the propofol, which I talked about before, and that's, Although that's very popular, um, anesthetic, most people know about it from, you know, famous um, celebrity um, accidents with it. But propofol, although it's very good in the operating room, as I said, because it's in a controlled setting, you have time for things, patients aren't as critically ill. In the ICU, it's not a good drug because it lowers the blood pressure, and it's known to do that. 
So like I said, in the operating room, when somebody's not as critically ill, they can use, they have enough reserve that they can tolerate that. In the intensive care unit, they can't because they're very critically ill. So propofol is not good because it kind of lowers everything. Ketamine may not be good because it can raise everything, uh, and it causes this kind of hallucinogenic effect. Tomidate may not be good because although it may maintain the blood pressure, it could lead to increased mortality because of increased adrenal insufficiency down the road. So you're kind of left with not a good choice to sedate a critically ill patient with. And so my research focuses on, well, if you have one, i.e. ketamine, that raises everything, and you have another one, i.e. propofol, that lowers everything in terms of hemodynamics, if you mix the two, would you get a stable blood pressure heart rate situation like a Tominate that wouldn't have the downstream effects of increased adrenal insufficiency and increased mortality, possibly. And with the combination, would you have reduced effects from the parent drug? So in other words, the hallucinogenic effects of ketamine, would that be attenuated um, by adding the propofol in there? Because you use a lesser dose of ketamine. So those individuals who get the hallucination is after when they wake up or those like uh, symptoms or yeah, usually Yep, usually when they when they um, are conscious and, and come... They still have those symptoms? Yep, those. yeah. Yep, it can last for oh, the the effects of the ketamine and, and you know side effects of propofol. All all the drug, all these drugs I'm talking about, all three, the um, various side effects they can cause can linger for hours after the patient wakes up. Um, wow. So so the whole that's the whole idea between the uh, behind the combination is really lessening the adverse effects from each drug individually by using less of the drug at, in the combination. And at the same time, maintaining a blood pressure status. So, can can we talk about a little bit? Can you share with us how do you, in this case, design the study? How do you decide to to conduct your study? Um, so, I the study I conducted, um, which I wanted to share today, was mm-hmm. like I said, the uh, was concentrated on this admixture of ketamine propofol called ketafol. Um, and so what I did is I compared it against Atominate um, in a clinical trial. What is Atominate? Uh, so Atominate's the other anesthetic agent. Okay. It's, it's the third kind of third one, in, third individual one we talked about. Okay. And I compared it against Atominate because, as I said before, the the general consensus among clinicians is that Atominate is blood pressure neutral. Um, but as I said, it has a downstream effect of possibly, you know, increasing or decreasing your survival. And so I compared it to Atominate as somewhat of as a gold standard. Um, you could think of it that way. And so it was essentially a comparative clinical trial between the two in, in, in a critically ill population, which mm-hmm. was at Mayo Clinic Rochester here. And um, so that was how you did it. I'm just trying yep. to follow up here. Um, so... And, and um, so it, this, the study, it, even though um, it was a clinical trial, it was a single center, it involved multiple units. So as I said, it was in the critically ill po- population at Mayo Clinic. But So you were checking files. That's what you were con- doing the study. Yeah, so what, um, how it was, so it involved three intensive care units at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Mm-hmm. Um so very a various mix of critically ill patients, um, 
the uh, study team or my study team screen the patients to, based on eligibility criteria within the clinical trial that's in in all clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Based on that, they were either included or excluded. Um, The ones that were included received the Ketafol if if they were randomized to that. So in other words, if they were allocated to getting Ketafol. And then the other arm, other group of patients, received Atomidate, which was kind of the standard or control arm, if you will. So just for everybody who's listening, the Ketafol is the mix. The ketof- yep, the ketafol is the ketamine profol yep. combination. Yep. Okay. Um, and so you had the two groups, the ketafol um, arm and then the atomidate arm. I see. Again, uh, intervent- comparing an exp- um, uh, um, intervention to a control arm, so ketafol to atomidate. Okay. Um, and, and like I said, the reason why we did it is, is trying to find an alternative to atomidate that's blood pressure safe that doesn't have that downstream negative effect of, more, of decreasing survival. And um, and this this study, um, even though it was a clinical trial multi, and a uh, multi-unit, mm-hmm. um, a clin- it was under emergent use research. So th- this clinical trial was very unique in the sense that it it had to satisfy certain tenets from the um, FDA to perform or to conduct it under emergent use research, which was even more stringent than just doing a clinical trial in the operating room, in the clinic, and outpatient practices. So it was under very um, intense scrutiny, both mm-hmm. from our institutional body as well as the regulatory body. And for somebody to get an idea of how science advanced, a story like this, how long it took? Um, so I, well, I, re- I originally conceived the idea oh, probably back in 2012. Okay. <laughs> and then... Uh, the try you have to do, you know, write yeah, writing, yeah, writing the protocol, um, getting the, you know, assembling the team. Uh, so with all that, it, um, it was, it was, I think, 2014 we started. So that's rolling. once it's approved by IRB. Can you yep. mention, describe what is IRB for listeners? So I, so once I uh, wrote the protocol and um, assembled the team, we had for this study, as I said, since it was done in a chaotic environment surrounding an intervention that's very emergent, uh, you know, the intubation, we uh, had to um, uh, first go to the FDA and say, you know, we want to do this under emergent use research. FDA is... Food and Drug Administration. Okay. And and reason why we had to do it under emergent use research is that if... If time didn't allow for us to consent somebody, um, we were able to enroll them. And then after the intervention, we would, by the FDA regulatory requirements, we would have to then notify them of the the enrollment into research. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at that time, if there was data going forward that was consenting whether they wanted to continue with data collection of their own data. Uh-huh. But emergent use research allows, one, if you can't get informed consent up front, um, that you still can go on with the intervention, but the, the patient or the family or LAR or whoever needs to be notified after the fact um, of of their involvement in research. So, so this is a different type of research. Yeah, so it's, it's it's I mean, it adds another level because of complexity. The, yes. Um, it adds another level of complexity on top of just a regular clinical trial with, with mm-hmm. consent for everybody up front before the intervention. So 
and, and that's why it's also has oversight from the federal regu- federal bodies as well as the our institutional body, which is the Institutional Revo- Review Board, or IRB. Mm-hmm. So w- once I got the approval from the FDA, then we went to the IRB and we got the approval from the IRB. The board. Yeah. Yep, which is our regulatory body. Um, and so once, you know... And those and, are in place to protect always the... Yep, to protect the, the, the patients. Yep, yeah, patients. Patients' interest. Um and so once that was done, which I said took quite a while, because I, I conceived this idea in 2012, it took a couple of years to do all that. Um, and then in 2014, we actually started enrolling. So it's a long time. And then we ended in 2018 enrollment. So it took... You know, what did we learn? What did you learn? What is the good news? So, do you have um, good news? Yeah, well, I, I think I have good news. Okay. <laughs> um, so... What we found out from the study was the ketafol ketamine profile combination was similar to Tominate in terms of maintaining somebody's blood pressure at the same level before they got the drug, um, which is a good thing. Um, that's what the whole premise of the trial was, the primary outcome. Um, we also found that it, and a lot of the secondary outcomes we looked at, like length of stay in the, in the intensive care unit or the hospital, um, blood product transfusion. So if you got blood pro- uh, red blood cell transfusion, um, uh, the amount of narcotic medications you would you would receive during the intensive care unit stay for various you know pain related procedures um, uh, were all lower in the ketafol arm than the Tomini arm. We also noticed a lower uh, a lower event rate of death in the ketafol arm versus the tomate arm. Now, these weren't none of these were statistically significant. So, in other words, they weren't significant to say if you take ketafol, you're definitely going to have increased survival. But there was a trend towards that finding, and so maybe if the trial enrolled more patients and it was a, a larger trial, we may have found a significant finding saying that yeah. If you get ketafol, you have a less chance of dying. But but again, we didn't find that. We just found a trend for it. Um, so, in other words, the, kind of the so, overall. So this needs to be recreated in a bigger setting. I, I you know I I would um. Well, what would be the second step? Yeah. So 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 overall, we found that it was similar to Tominate in terms of blood pressure. It it, it had. Um, less adverse events than Atominate for a lot of secondary outcomes, as I just mentioned. So it kind of begs the question of this probably should be replicated in a larger trial to see if it, to tease it out, uh, if it really does, um, Increases. you know, if it really does um, have a lower incidence of, of the adverse events that I talked about previously, mm-hmm. you know, lower, re- lower transfusion requirements, lower mortality, lower length of stay, um, it would need to be repeated in a much larger trial to really say that it does or doesn't. Um, so that's kind of what we found. So it's, it, it was exciting for me because it kind of, at least for me, proved my point that it was, that all along with the research I've been doing with it and literature, that it was it was likely similar to, um, to atominate for blood pressure. Um, and the blood pressure, why we picked that as the, as the primary outcome rather than death and trying to have a trial um, powered for death or survival, which would have required a lot more patients, and this probably wouldn't have been <laughs> done in 10 years even. So, But the reason why we picked the primary outcome as blood pressure 
is that a lot of studies lately have shown that in the intensive care unit and in the operating room and, at the, and in the hospital floor, so in general, if somebody comes to the hospital, gets admitted for whatever reason, whatever location they're at, whether they're critically ill or not, if they have a low blood pressure and they experience low blood pressure during the time they're in the hospital, again, doesn't matter the setting, doesn't matter how sick they are, if it's lower than they normally experience as, as an outpatient, so when they're at home mm-hmm. doing their thing or at work, that they have a higher likelihood of experiencing complication. And what I mean by that is a higher likelihood of having death. Um, wow. so, so maintaining somebody's blood pressure and not letting them languish in a low blood pressure state than what they're used to in the hospital at any, any location is of vital importance. And so that's why we picked this outcome as our kind of, that, that's how we powered the trial was because of that outcome. It wasn't, you know, mortality or death or survival. Uh, and like I said, it would have been a lot, we would have had the, the trials, the sample size would have, you know, been 10 times as large. It probably wouldn't have been completed in 10 years if we were to powered it for, you know, death. Um, the surrogate outcome of low blood pressure is just as important because it, indirectly leads to that final outcome i see so this is great great um because a lot of the community uh comes with problems of uh, like you just mentioned about uh low blood pressure mm-hmm. yep. so yep. i have a question question personal question where were you when that idea came to your mind do you remember where you walk in, jogging in bed, <laughs> taking a shower? Because um, yeah. those, I, to me, I usually have a great idea when I'm mowing the lawn or walking my dog. Yeah. Do you know those moments where yeah, no, I just on the zone? This is, uh, the, the, well, the, the ketamine profile combination, the ketafol, I, um, I, this trial actually stemmed from an earlier trial I did at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire when I was an anesthesia resident. Okay. So when I was an anesthesia resident, very early in my career, I met um, a anesthesia intensivist like myself now. Um, his name was Dr. Matt Koff, and he's still actually at Dartmouth-Hitchcock okay. um, uh, Medical Center. And he was very big on the ketamine profile combination Interestingly, he calls it ketafol, and I call it ketafol, but uh, mm-hmm. he was very big on the ketafol. And so he let me um, do it as a resident and, and kind of showed me his way of doing it and his approach and, and explained you know, his reasoning for doing it and not just say, hey, we're going to experiment on a patient kind of yeah. thing. You know, this, this is why I'm doing it. And really ever since then, I've, I've, I've seen it work. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've realized the potential that it has. And so I, I just kind of took it and, and ran yeah. with it. Um, and, and, Dr. So, and in these ways, for science, we're documenting everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then so then Dr. Koff and I then did a, our initial trial of ketafol versus propofol only in the operating room back at Dartmouth, which was, again, a clinical trial, mm-hmm. randomized clinical trial. Um, but it was an operating room, controlled setting, healthier patients, and we, we compared it to only propofol only because that's the most common anesthetic in the operating room. It's you know universally probably the most common by and large. Um, and we, we found the same, and we found that it was superior to propofol in, in blood pressure, which you would expect, you know, because you have ketamine mixed in with the combination versus just propofol only. So mm-hmm. you, you would expect it would be superior as far as blood pressure. But we also found that patients in the recovery unit before they went home rated their anesthesia experience better. They had less nausea, vomiting. They had less pain. 
So, so based on that, that kind of was feel to f- fire um, uh, or a feel for the fire for this trial. Okay. And so that that's kind of how this trial came to be. It just took me a while to try to figure out how am I going to conduct this trial because the other one was much easier because it was healthy mm-hmm. patients. They could consent beforehand. I could call them up the night before. I knew they were going to have surgery, you know, this next or tomorrow. Yeah. So it so that was easier to conduct and carry out than this one. Um, and so that's why this one took me a little bit longer to try to figure out all the logistical issues and hurdles <laughs> with it, okay. which still we we're still at the end of it. I, I still never really figured out <laughs> it was that complex. Oh, I want to congratulate to you, to your team, to everybody, because it sounds like you were working with a lot of people oh, to, yes. yeah. to get this, yep. this study. Anything else that would you like to share about this study? Um, no, I think I, I, you know, I think I went. Um, We're going to be over. sharing uh, a link to your yeah, okay. profile where people can uh, contact you. Yeah, if no. They have more questions, and we're going to be linking to the to the study where other individuals can learn about it. Yeah, and everybody, and there is so many anesthesiologists is in all over the mm-hmm. in the healthcare. Uh, from somebody's getting their tooth out, uh, a pregnant woman, yep. broken leg. At uh, which fields have you practiced before um, uh, in this field? So as uh, in the, your career, yeah. So I, you know, I came from residency at Dartmouth, went right into fellowship here in 2011, critical care fellowship, and then I stayed on staff here. So I haven't been anywhere else between. Or besides those two institutions, um, so on as a staff member here, I initially started out doing um, uh, anesthesia in a division that was kind of for orthopedic procedures, mm-hmm. um, plastic surgery, thoracic surgery, vascular surgery, and that's um, a different different type of uh, anesthesia. I mean, a different type of. Of patient population, patient population, uh, and and medicine that you provide. No, no, no. Uh, the, uh, different. I mean, the patient mix is different because it's it's different surgeries they're having. Because um, after that, I moved to a different division in our department that focuses on uh, bowel surgery, so general surgery, trauma surgery, ENT, urology. Um, so. It, so the surgeries are different. The patient mix is a little different because of the surgeries. But the drugs um, are the same? But the drugs are the same, yeah. Wow. The, the, the three drugs, the ketamine, propofol, etomidate, and I'll say four now, ketofol, um, are, are by and large drugs chosen for every procedure pretty much. Really? Um, throughout, the, throughout the world, really. Um, whether in the operating room, in the emergency department. So why would they in, put it on my wife when she was having a baby? What's that? What would, what would they put in when my wife was having a baby? Oh, so um, if they're not, these drugs are used, you know, like I said, they're anesthetic sedatives. So they're typically used for sedation. And what follows after that is usually placement of the breathing tube. But other surgeries can be done under a regional anesthetic, so not a oh, general okay. anesthetic. So regional anesthetics would be a spinal epidural where you wouldn't use these medications because you're not sedating okay, the that's patient where I was um, for the most part. Sometimes, obviously, if you have a spinal epidural and somebody's getting a knee replacement um, you know, or some lower extremity procedure, 
you may give them a propofol infusion, continuous infusion, so they're a little sleepy and they're not hearing you know, drills okay. and saws and voices and what have you. Yeah, that would but, be. A- but, I mean, it, it's not those, when they have a regional anesthetic, they're not getting a bolus of these drugs to put them to sleep. Okay. That's only for, like, a general anesthetic. Which, which by and large, most of the anesthetics in the country and the and the world are general anesthetics. Most most are general anesthetics. So. And when when you were a student, what brought you? What was the? How did you get interested into this field? Um, oh, and, oh anesthesiology. Were, yeah. Um, so I was uh, as a medical. What is student, the career path for somebody like you? Yeah, I well, so I went at, when medical school. I was actually. Um, pretty set on being becoming a surgeon, and in particular a neurosurgeon. <laughs> and then, um, and I think I had in my mind that neurosurgeons, you know, the glory and everybody looks and they're the best and the brightest of the brightest and kind of that 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 was kind of my <laughs> my foolish thinking when I was a very young medical student. Um, and then I went through a couple rotations and I said, no, that's not for me. <laughs> and then I kind of switched gears and then I was going to do urology. Um, so I was going to become a surgeon uh, in urology, and uh, and then I, at the very end of my medical training, um, fourth year medical student, I took a anesthesia elective, and I actually took it as a joke because when I took it, I was told by my peers that, oh, take this, it'll give you a lot of time off, you can go out and you know work on other things, and, you know, and just have downtime, get ready, study for your your step your USMLE exams before you go to residency. And so that's kind of how, when I signed up for it, that's honestly what my intent was. Um, I'm sure that my medical school won't like hearing that, but that was my intent. And then I got into it first day, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then it was just, ever since since then, it was kind of like, yep, this is exactly what I want to do. And then, like I said, from from then, I graduated. Did they make you, between you students, Pull the tube so you know what the patients go through. No, I never had that. But I, uh, at Dartmouth, I had a, um, <laughs> I had a uh, attending that used to uh, <laughs> let um, the students practice on him and fiber optic intubation and numb his airway, and you could do a fiber optic intubation on him so that you could get the experience. So, so I, I never did it to myself, or yeah. nobody did it to me. But we, I did have an attending when I trained as a resident that uh, would let the and how, residents what, do what it. What are the symptoms after? What do the patients share? Where, how do they feel after removing of the tube? Um, I, I mean, most of the time they don't. Uh, it's kind of a mix. Most patients that I interview after the surgery in the recovery room, most don't endorse any issues um, as far as from the breathing tube. Some do um Let's say somebody who got a complication or, or uh, I don't want to say complication, but symptoms after yeah. that so, procedure, either because it was an emergency mm-hmm. or... Some, some, will, uh, some will endorse hoarseness, um, a sore throat. Um, okay. uh, that's the common things. If it's, done, you know, if it's done emergently, you have a higher risk of complications in that... You not only may not you, you not only have the complications I just said that the patients may experience, but you may have a chipped tooth because somebody just is oh. is not as careful placing the breathing tube. So they how may, deep is it goes in somebody's diaphragm? How how long um, is that tube? Uh, it's uh, I mean the the tube itself. Uh, typically, most people don't put it past you know twenty five twenty six centimeters. Um, 
it can go past that. It can go 30 centimeters, 32. I mean, it can go it can go up there. You can kind of do a victory shove and yeah. go all the way in. But but most most people don't push it all the way down because uh, you, then the tube would go into the right or left lung, okay. and you would so you kind of right before the wall. Yep, because yeah. then you'd have selective. You'd you'd only be ventilating one lung, which is not good. So most of the time, it's not 24 centimeters, 24, 25 centimeters. Most people don't put it past that. Okay. Um, but sometimes you have a very tall person, you know, six and a half feet or, you know, yeah. taller, and sometimes you you do put it down closer to 30, but um, but it's it, those are more rare. Um, and what is the history of anesthesiology? When the science and doctors used to start using an anesthesiology, I mean, drugs to... Um, I, well, I guess I can't... Do you I, remember you know, from, from school? Yeah, ketamine profile autonomy, I can't tell you when... Not necessarily they've this, been off. but any other back... When in history, when well, it was back in the eighteen yeah, hundreds when they used to use um, not not these drugs. I mean, these Correct. drugs haven't been around that long. But um, back in the eighteen hundreds, GAT they used to put patients off to sleep with chloroform, ether, those kind of things. Okay, um, that was kind of just a you know soaked sponge. Oh if yeah, you I've will. seen some of those from uh, Civil War. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of yeah, just a soaked sponge, and they would inhale it. Um, so like. They would inhale these gases, and it would it would do the same thing as these drugs, and it would get them off to sleep. Okay, it's not as pleasant experience because they're they don't smell the best, and people had reactions and were and vomiting. And wake up in the middle of the procedure. Or um, uh, early on, yeah, there wasn't a way to continuously give it to them, so they would have to kind of intermittently give it to them, and yeah, they would have bouts of wakefulness during a operation yeah so it definitely was more um, barbaric i would just say than it is now that these you know having now these drugs and and even before these drugs you know we had other iv sedatives and so just when the practice went from inhalation induction um, for all comers whether you're a, a pediatric patient or not just all comers that and the the vault the gases weren't pleasant to IV anesthetics, it, it improved immensely um, patients' experience because um, then you could keep kind of giving these IV anesthetics throughout. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the gases, finally, when we got an anesthetic machine and stuff that could deliver it continuously, that also improved the, the specialty immensely. Um, and then these three drugs in particular, propofol, once that came out, you know, that, it's so widely used and it People usually have a very good experience with propofol. They rate it as a very good anesthetic. So, so it's 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 gone through a lot of changes. But yeah, back yeah. I would say in the you know back in the eighteen hundreds, no, no, yeah. But yeah, it used to be back then. It was just a a, a cloth with some ether chloroform dipped in it, and then <laughs> the patient just had to inhale. So that's kind of how it was. So, and they probably used that same thing for cows or. Uh, I'm or sure they farm. did. I, I don't know, but I'm sure they. Did. I'm sh uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they did. I don't know that, but. Oh, the cow <laughs> bird. So, doctor, thank you so much for stopping by and and for all the work that you and your team do, for an advice advancing science and, please stop by again when yep. you have another. Um, study or information that you want to share with our audience um, and let's go are you going back to the major area for the holidays coming up um, what do you usually do I uh, 
pro- I, I don't know if I'll be going back for the holidays. Usually I have, now that I've been here, I have my family um, kind of come down here. Um, but I, I don't know if they'll, if they'll work out this do year. Do you but grow usually, up fishing? Uh, I did ice fish more than kind of fishing in the summer. So I, I, did, I did a lot of ice fishing as a, as a child. And then I do it here and there when I can get away. But um, I don't really fish during the summer much. Um, it's more ice fishing. So. A true Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. And I want to remind everybody to follow us on Facebook under Community Board, on Twitter under Community Board. Find us on iTunes under Community Board Podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. On SoundCloud, also find us under Community Board Podcast. And stay tuned for more information. Thank you, Doctor. And. <laughs> Let's go for a break. All right, thank you. Thank you. What's going on this weekend? What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to. Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk, if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture.